This, this is Brock and Salk. Brock Ewart is my hero. Jay Buter just punched me in the kidney. Powered through the Alaska Airlines studio. On Seattle Sports. We're going to do you a minute. Doesn't really work that way, Sherm. This is a show that has my name on it. It kind of does, though. Brought to you by Carter Volkswagen and Ballard. Now, here are your hosts, Brock Ewart and Mike Salk. Hello! Yeah, this text just speaks to me. What can I tell you? Mike, want to let you know I really enjoy your show. Also, guess what I just did? Spend 30 minutes on my phone checking in for my orthopedic appointment this morning. All the information, including a photo of the insurance card, ID card, even made payment for my copay. So when I get to the orthopedic appointment, I'll be all set, right? Nothing more to fill out. I'm guaranteeing you they're going to make me do it all again as soon as I arrive. Just letting you know, because I think you heard heard you talk. Yes, I did talk about it, and it's amazing, Willem. Thank you for the text. How often that happens. You spend all this time filling out their stupid forms, and as soon as you get in, they just make you fill out the same forms again. Like, why, why did I do it then? You know what? Yesterday, I filled out no forms. You know what happened when I got there? They didn't make me fill out any forms. It's like they know that you're a sucker. So the moment you filled out the forms, they start asking you to do more of the forms in order to like. Sounds like a Seinfeld episode. Yeah, like we've got this guy on the hook. Let's keep uh, let's no keep forms. asking him for more. Exactly. Forms. I don't want any forms. Uh, Greg Bishop is here. Our buddy, of course, Sports Illustrated and everything else that you do. What's going on, man? How are you? Oh, hold on. Let's get your mic on. There you go. There, there you go. What's going on? Doing well, man. Thank you for having me. Feels like uh, we're doing a little reunion here. I, it is, yeah. It's been too long. Tell us, uh, tell us what you're working on these days, because that usually leads to fascinating <laughs> stories. What are you? Uh, what are you working on? Well, for uh, my Showtime stuff, still doing a lot of TV scripts for them. We got Spence Crawford coming up. Uh, Ghostwriting a book. Working on four documentaries. Showtime stuff's all boxing related. Mostly boxing. Yeah, our main show is all access, okay. and sometimes it's for like the Winter Classic or whatever big event might be coming up. Yeah, but yeah. Mostly it's about boxers. So we just had three episodes on uh, Tank Davis and Ryan Garcia. And for SI, I got a lot of stuff cooking. Uh, let's see. We got Katie Meyer, the Stanford goalie who died by suicide. Oh, yeah. Uh, working on the cover on Jalen Hurts. Spent a lot of time with him lately. Okay. Oh, I got to ask you some questions about him. That included a DJ Jazzy Jeff interview, which Whoa. was kind of a life highlight. Whoa. Yeah. All right. Hold on. Let's <laughs> dig in here. All right. See, just generally, all you got to do is ask Greg what he's working on. At least like a million follow up questions. This is why we need a full hour. All right. So let's start with Jalen Hurts. So, first of all, <laughs> DJ Jazzy Jeff. How does that happen? Well, it's now the the best number in my phone now that Sir Mix-a-Lot changed numbers, so let's just start with that. But, uh, you know, I do our Super Bowl cover every year. Last year was our ninth, and uh, spent some time with Jalen in December and again in January. And he's sort of an old soul, but this one really hurt, right? Like, he's an old soul who's grounded in the 90s, which should make everyone that's our age mm. on this listening to this really sad. When you say grounded in, like, he loves, like, 90s music yeah, like, and movies and all that. His dad's a football coach in Houston, so he learned all of that from dad. But mom was big into R&B. Okay. You know, he was telling me Keith Sweat was old school, and I was like, come on, bro. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not that old. Like, you know, what are you saying here? And, you know, he's, he was a big fan of uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. And so last year at a game, he ran into Jazzy Jeff and he did the handshake that he used to do on oh, the show. Man. So, I, of course, me being me, I'm a little bit weird and uh, definitely always into a conversation. I, I tracked DJ Jazzy Jeff down. I got him on the phone and he said he had never done the handshake before since the show until he did it with Jalen Hurts. Whoa. And so, yeah, what, I, what my pitch was for the cover shoot, and they have not decided this yet, but hopefully, you know, write, write Sports Illustrated and tell them I'm a genius. But uh, 
That, what I suggested for the shoot is we get get him in front of one of those um, you know graffiti murals of him in Philly. Yeah. Put him in the Fresh Prince outfit, and maybe even include DJ Jazzy Jeff. So we'll see if uh, if the editors buy that one. But um, yeah, it was fun to talk to him, man. He t- we talked about Jeffrey Lurie's movie Summer of Soul that yeah. won an Oscar. We talked about the show, and you know, I was probably more excited to talk to him <laughs> than any star athlete I'm doing. Right, you've with talked right to now. a million athletes, yeah. but getting a chance to talk to you know DJ Jazzy Jeff is he still in touch with Will Smith? Like, are they friends? That I did not ask, oh, but I, I probably man. should have, yeah. Like, is that a, I mean, because they were obviously continuing to be friends during that time when he was doing the show after they were really a musical act. Yeah. I wonder if they still talk. Did you get his opinion on, like, the Chris Rock moment? I did not. Oh. I, I did see Chris Rock here, though, so uh, I did have a little background. Yeah, that would have been the best question. Like, have you ever slapped someone? And if not, who would you choose, you know? Yeah. Okay, so what did you learn about Jalen Hurst? Because he could have been here. I mean, that's one of the things that that I don't think we've talked about enough. We mention it occasionally that when Russ was on his way out and wanted out, one of the places that wanted him was Philadelphia. And my impression is that if that deal had gotten done, Jalen Hurts going to be a Seahawk and Russell Wilson was going to be an Eagle. How would that have worked? Well, your impression is correct. You know, I think that deal was closer than people know, you know, and. I think Pete would have loved him. You know, he's exactly Pete's kind of player. You know, I've done a million of these uh, quarterback profiles. Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, like pretty much the whole gamut. And Jalen is easily the most self-assured guy I've ever dealt with. Guy who knows exactly who he is. A guy who doesn't deviate at all. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I went with him to his college graduation at Oklahoma. He graduated with a degree in human relations, which is interesting because he's known as sort of a robot, right? Mm-hmm. And he just knew every person there. Like, it was it was clear that that place had such an impact on him and vice versa. And I just think that it's kind of fun to interview him because most guys will give you sort of a stock answer or they'll try to steer you toward what they want the story to be about. He very much challenges me, and I just saw him in Philadelphia like a week ago, and, you know, he's, he said to me, actually, you'll appreciate this, he said, I appreciate your persistence, meaning, like, <laughs> you keep asking the same question in a different way, and I'm still not going to answer it because this is not something I want to talk about. <laughs> and the subject of when he said that is even better because it was about his little sister, his younger sister, going to prom. Hmm. And I was trying to get details of, like, what's it like for that prom date? You know, like, you show up at a house and you see his dad, who's a big dude, the high school football coach, his brother, who played football in college and is now a high school football coach himself. And then there's Jalen Hurts, who, by the way, came, like, a few points away from winning Super Bowl MVP in February. Yeah. And I'm like, what did you say to him? Like, does this guy even come in the house? Do you, like, run from the door? And then he was like, oh, yeah, I appreciate your persistence, which I'm sure a lot of people have wanted to say to me over the years. <laughs> or, or not wanted to say to you. I think, you know, in just talking about Jalen Hurts, the thing that jumps out to me is, is, and I love him. I liked him when he was being drafted. I remember saying, like, I feel like he might end up being the best quarterback in this draft because of the way he handled all of what had went down at, at Alabama. The guy gets benched at halftime. And is so gracious afterwards, and it seemed real. It seemed legitimate. Who knows? I don't. I don't know the inside of his head, but I've never seen anybody handle anything like that with more grace. And the fact that it came back around the next year for him to get to come back in and relief and win again. I, I mean, like you couldn't write that story if you were writing for Showtime. 
No, a couple cool side notes there. You know, one is that, you know, uh, I reported this last December, but, you know, Jalen gets benched, they win the title, and he shows up the next morning in the weight room in Alabama, and he sees a bunch of freshmen, like, goofing off inside the weight room. And this is a guy who just got humiliated on national television, one of the most famous benchings in the history of sports. And he comes in, and he sees this, and he gathers them all together, and he says, I'll leave the expletives out, you know, essentially, hey, this is a standard that we have here. We are going to play this way, and you are not going to do this if wow. you want to play at Alabama. And to me, that was really telling. The other thing that I loved is, you know, he went into the Super Bowl last year far more injured than anybody really knew. I mean, we talked so much about Patrick Mahomes. And the ankle and, you know, sort of his Jordan flu moment, you know, speaking of, uh, have the Jordan sweatshirt on today. And uh, Jalen's shoulder was was in really bad shape. And yet uh, the last game he played injured was actually a shoulder injury. And it was against Georgia when he <laughs> came in and, you know, in relief of Tua and won that game to bring full circle to that story. And then he played amazing in the Super Bowl, yeah. you know, minus one play. and. You know, one one more thing I'd say in that regard, you know, this will be in the in the cover story in a couple months, is Jalen took responsibility for that loss in the locker room, even though he had one bad play all day, yeah. and it was where he dropped the snap and fumble, and then they scored. And, you know, I, to me, it just spoke volumes to, like, this is a guy who, you know, love him or hate him, you know, like it or leave it, he is just himself. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. That's a really, really hard thing to do. I can't imagine what there would be to hate about him. I like He just is such a, seems incredibly likable in the way he plays the game. I, I certainly enjoy it. And I think it would have been awesome if Russ hadn't killed that deal. I would have loved to have seen what would have happened to Russ if he'd played that way in Philly. And I would love to have seen what Jalen Hurts would have looked like here in Seattle. It would have been a heck of a battle with Geno Smith. Who knows what would have even happened there? So talk about going down the road less tra- or, or, or unknown, like a sliding door situation. All right, Greg Bishop is here from Sports Illustrated. Uh, hopefully you know the voice and love the stories as well. we got a ton to do uh, over the course of the next 50 minutes or so. We'll be right back. It's Brock and Salk, Seattle Sports on 710, seattlesports.com. This, this is Brock and Salk. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. Back in mornings from 6 to 10. On Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. All right, I know normally we give you everything you need to know a quarter past the hour. There's not that much to know. The Mariners got killed. Julio is the American League Player of the Week. And everything else is kind of made up. So uh, we've got Greg Bishop here with us from Sports Illustrated. I'd rather just have Greg tell stories, etc. <laughs> Uh, and people, by the way, are looking for passing stories because every time passing comes on, he just dumps on you, man. Like he's always taking shots. Right. And I know he stayed with you when he was out here. Uh, Jeff did tell us uh, just yesterday. I don't know whether you know this about Jeff. You guys were roommates, right? I mean, you've lived together. One of my best friends, uh, godfather to my son. Wow. I mean, so that's pretty hardcore. Did you know this about Jeff? Yeah, I'm not a moaner. Did you know that? I did not know that. See, Jeff's very see, he's very open with us here on the show. Yeah, I'm not a moaner. He says he's not a moaner. Don't you guys play a wet blanket song? For yeah, him yeah okay. he's also got his wet blanket song. <laughs> yeah. I actually have a great passing Julio story if you want me to tell it. I think we do. Okay, so last year I was writing Julio, you know, right when everything was blowing up. Uh, we went to lunch in Bellevue as part of the reporting for the story. And whether through serendipity or miscommunication, when I told him that I knew passing. He told me that he did. He just sort of like looked at me blankly and didn't respond. Okay. So at like a week later, we're on a college group chat. We're texting, and he's talking about how much Julio loves him. 
And so I decide to tell them the story. And I say, well, that's funny because we had lunch the other day and uh, he didn't claim to know you at all. <laughs> and so then this just became a long running joke. I told like Jerry DePoto. I told, uh, you know, Tim Hevley and the PR staff. I now call uh, passing BFOJ, best friend of Julio. And he was so offended to be embarrassed on our on our group chat. You you can play this back for him next time he comes on. Well, I think we will. Yeah. He was so embarrassed that he approached Julio near the playoff time. He came out and covered the uh, playoff game. Stayed at my house, the marathon one, and he actually taped a video uh, asking Julio if he knew him, which I found to be a little bit um, right try hard, I guess. Yeah. And. Also, the best part of the video, this is going to be the kicker, is the first thing he says in this video is, Julio, do you know who Greg Bishop is? Ah. And he goes, of course. And I was like, that, that's where I stopped listening. You know, that's all I needed to know. Well, you're, if you're down with Julio, then everything should be fine. BFOJ. Uh, were you were you here when, when I was uh, last year? I feel like I might have even talked to you about this when you were writing the cover. And, and we were trying to figure out who, who the comps are for Julio, who he reminds us of. And the person that Julio reminds me of more than anybody is Magic Johnson. And I, I know they play different sports, so, you know, from different places. But I just see so much Magic Johnson for everything from being too tall for his position but making it work to success at such a young age to the smile and the charisma and just the West Coast element. Like so many parts of it just kind of work for me. Yeah, I think that's a great comp, you know, because when I watch Julio Rodriguez play baseball, what I see is something that I think is sometimes gets lost in professional sports, and that's joy. You know, this is a guy that enjoys himself and enjoys being dominant, but not in a kind of a gross way. There's not like that killer Kobe Mamba mentality. I mean, he has that, but it doesn't show outwardly. And to me, when you look at Magic, that's the way he played, you know. In addition to that, Magic was versatile. I think their smiles, you could even yeah. say, are similar. And there's just sort of a gravitational pull to both guys. You know, you're in a room with Julio. You know he's in the room. You know you know he's around and you know he's the guy. And I think that that sort of transcends baseball even. You know, people that don't love baseball that I know here love Julio, you know. And, uh, you know, BFOJ could probably answer it better <laughs> than me, but uh, uh, that's my take. What, um, who's the happy, you said joy, who, who is the most joyful, happiest athlete you've ever been around? Oh man. Well, athletes in some ways are like sports writers. They're not the most joyful bunch. People that play with joy. I'm Which by thinking, the way is so strange considering I think you were to talk to most people, they'd say, these are dream jobs, right? Either you're the athlete and you're getting paid a gazillion dollars or you're the writer who gets to, you know, travel with the team and be around them. I mean, those are dream jobs for tons of people. It is interesting that it's not exactly a collection of joyful people. Yeah. And I think that stems from like, it's still their job, right? Like my friends always tease me. They're like, why are you so angsty? Mm. Like, what, what about your job is so difficult? Like you go and watch a game and then you write about it. Sounds pretty fun to me. And I'm like, well, I guess you got a point, you know, haters going to make some good points. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, I, when I think of joyful athletes, I think of... You know, this is a sort of out of left field, but I think Mo, the 800-meter runner who won gold in in um, in Tokyo, like when she runs, she's smiling, you know, and she's got this huge lead and she's just going down the backstretch and, 
you know, there's a smile on her face. I think as somebody like Steph Curry, you know, comes to mind, plays with a lot of joy, you can sort of feel his uh, smile and bearing every time a three-pointer drops through the net. Uh, in the NFL, I'm trying to think of somebody, and I'm struggling to come up with one. I mean, look at the quarterbacks. Who plays with joy? That, that's that's a position loaded with stress and anxiety, I guess, uh, hazardous work conditions. Survival. Yeah. Yeah, and I think part of it stems from professional sports, right? Like, you look at the NFL, like average careers somewhere in the four, three to four years range. Um there is somebody always looking to take your spot. Narratives change as quickly as as teams do. Uh, look at Russell Wilson, and I just think that, that when somebody in sports exhibits the kind of joy that you see from Julio, it should be um, noted and celebrated because it is way more rare, to your point, mm. I think, than people would expect because we think of sports and we think of joy because that's what it brings to fans because your childhood memories stay with you. I'm thinking Mariners in 95. It's so funny, though, because oftentimes sports don't bring us joy. Only one team finishes off as a winner every year. Mostly sports brings us misery. It brings us disappointment. And yet we associate it so closely with joy, with happiness, with things that we love. It is a it is a strange business that we all find ourselves in or, or listening to or reading. That. That's actually a great column idea. There's no joy in sports, you know? But let's just let's take the whole thing down. Well, and yet, and yet, like, is frustrated. I mean, and right now is, like, Mariner frustration central, right? I mean, like, we're reading this on the text and the Twitter and everything. People are so upset with what's happened so far this year with the Mariners. And I was at the game Friday night, and they were getting beat up by the Pirates. And people couldn't be happier. It's a beautiful night. It's Friday night. They're out at the ballpark. They're playing music and dancing, and they're cheering for the team and, like... Sports can sometimes bring us joy even when it's not bringing us joy, which is one of the great things about it. Greg Bishop is in with us from Sports Illustrated and a whole bunch of other stuff. I got to hear about what's going on with the movies. We got to talk a little boxing. I got to hear, uh, let's see, Kraken, Seahawks, mental health. There's like a million things left to do. We got another half hour with Greg coming up next. Brock and Salk, Seattle Sports on 710. You're listening to Brock and Salk. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. On Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. All right, we got Greg Bishop in the building. Rock and Salt, Seattle Sports on 710, seattlesports.com. Greg, just one of those guys. You got to have him come in. You got to just hear stories. You need a full hour. And just, you know, hear what's going on in the life of a guy who writes some of the most interesting cover stories for Sports Illustrated and always has great behind-the-scenes access. But I, I got a bunch of other things here kind of on my list. I feel but like every conversation, you guys, it's like a Wikipedia article. Like, right? he says one thing, and it, it, it links to another story. Yes. And then you don't finish that one, and it goes... <laughs> it's just a big wormhole, essentially, <laughs> yeah. right, with uh, with Greg. So let me come back then, because uh, Kyle just poked his head in here and was like, I got to hear more about Russell Wilson was very nearly a... Uh, uh, an eagle, et cetera. So I had heard that too. My, my understanding is that that deal was basically done and Russ killed it. Yeah. I, you know, I think what I'd say is the Eagles really wanted him. I think they liked his style of play. And I think that makes sense, right? Because, you know, it's similar to Jalen Hurts, mm-hmm. especially when he was, you know, in his prime and a little bit faster, I think, than now. And yeah, my understanding is, you know, at that point in time, Russ wanted to stay here. And then ultimately, that's not what happened. But um, the Eagles were going gangbusters after quarterbacks for a couple of years. And until Jalen, you know, they went into last season essentially saying, we're going to give him everything he needs so we can truly evaluate him. And then he showed himself to be what you thought coming out of the draft. Well, but he's one of those guys. And this is something I just see so often in the NFL. 
you have to give those guys everything that that makes them them. If you put people in a compromised position and then they don't succeed, you blame them at the end of it and you've missed out on the opportunity. And you know what? I, this is like it was the most hot button name in the NFL for years. But Tim Tebow was like that when they gave Tim Tebow all of the resources to be Tim Tebow. And I'm not a Tebow fan by any stretch. Uh, he said a lot of things that I, that I don't agree with. But Tim Tebow, the player, when given the right opportunity and and built around him, was pretty effective. Brought a team to a to a playoff series or to a playoffs and then won. Why why would you take a quarterback and then not try to do what he's best at? Absolutely. You know, one of my pet peeves is the phrase system quarterback. Mm. We say that all the time, and it's usually used in a derogatory sense, right? They're all system quarterbacks, every single one of them. Now, some of them elevate the system that they're in. You look at a Tom Brady, you look at Aaron Rodgers. Some of them are great in the system when the system is, has the pieces. You know, there's a whole tier of quarterbacks that are not quite truly elite, can carry you into a Super Bowl who I think just need the right team around them to have a chance to win. I'm thinking of a Dak Prescott, for instance. You know, great quarterback, right? Truly elite but not necessarily the guy that's going to win you a Super Bowl unless he has the pieces. And, you know, we use system quarterbacks like there's four gods, you know, that play that position, and then everybody else needs the system. They, they all need it, and they all need good players. And look at Brady's Super Bowl wins and losses. Look at the receivers on those teams. Look at the offensive lines on those teams. Look at the defense that he played with for the first three titles. I mean— it, it, the NFL is so connected and everything ties together that you need, yeah, you need to give Jalen Hurts and A.J. Brown, you know, and you need to give him so, a Devontae Smith. So where are you now on the build around a franchise quarterback versus build a roster and not pay the quarterback debate, which seems to be raging in the NFL? Yeah, to me, it's the most fascinating thing, right? Because the guys in the tier that I was talking about, to me, you have to pay them because what's your alternative? How many Geno Smiths are there out there, you know, where you have a guy on your roster who's just going to elevate into a really good quarterback when there's nothing in his history to predict that that would happen? And, you know, to roll the dice like that and be successful, it, to me, was classic uh, Pete Carroll, John Schneider, you know. But in general, I think if you have one of the top 10 or 12 or 14 quarterbacks in the NFL— you have to pay them. Ideally, you get them on a rookie contract. You take your shots, but then you're in the situation that Philadelphia is in now. You got a guy you don't want to let go of. You got a guy who can win you a Super Bowl, and you have an awesome team around him. So you pay him. But then in the in the next couple of years, you're going to see they won't have all those other great players around him. Guys are going to retire. Guys are going to get paid more other places. And that, to me, makes what the Chiefs are doing really interesting, right? Because you have a team that reconfigured on the fly last year and won another Super Bowl. You have a team with a quarterback that made that possible. And that quarterback has taken a slight discount to stay. And, you know, I think a lot of the next few NFL seasons will be built around these massive quarterback yeah. contracts that are coming. It's hard for me, though, because like, I, I like Jalen Hurts. I've told you that. I don't know whether if you pay him the same, what, $35 million, whatever it is, a year that Patrick Mahomes, some of those guys are making. I don't know whether he can win with a roster that is going to start to, you know, fall apart around him. And so the question is, would you take a Super Bowl this upcoming season if that was the trade-off? Yeah. I think so, right? I mean, and so— But I don't need to pay him for that, right? I mean, like, I don't need to pay him yet. Yeah, you could have kept him for one more year, but then you have disgruntled, you have potential locker room issues— 
And I, I just think you take your shots while you got them. I mm-hmm. think they got a two- or three-year window, you know, where they could maybe do it. And the Eagles' philosophy is, I think, you know, something all NFL teams say, but few do. And they, they don't want to be what they were under Andy Reid, no disrespect intended. You know, a team that makes the playoffs consistently but doesn't really have a chance to win except for the rare year. They want to be bad in 2020 and in the Super Bowl in 2022. And I think that that, that involves risk-taking, it involves you know calculation, and it involves sticking to an organizational philosophy. But it means you're going to go up and down. Have the Seahawks turned into that Andy Reid in Philadelphia team? I would say so. Yeah, absolutely. Now, can they surmount it this year? I like their chances better than in any recent year, but they did more reconfiguring. You know, had an awesome draft, found the right quarterback, uh, had another awesome draft, you know, this past spring. And, yeah, I think that they had become that team, you know, and they were in the playoffs every year. But did you ever think in any of those years post, you know, that moment in Arizona, sorry, to the 12s that are listening, you know, that they had a real chance to win the Super Bowl? I, I wouldn't. I would. I can't think of a year where I felt that way. I think maybe the next year, right? Yeah. I mean, they were still pretty darn good. They made the playoff. I mean, they were still in the next year or two, but you're right. Since then, it has not felt like they were a Super Bowl winning team. Playoffs, yes, but not at that sort of elite level. And, and I don't know that I feel that they are yet either, but I, I, I see sort of a path to getting there again. Meanwhile, Russ, of course, is in Denver. Talk about systems and all that. What do you see? We, we played this sound earlier here. I'll play it for you. Tell me what you think of this from Mike Tannenbaum, who uh, was talking about sort of what it's like and what it's going to be like for Russ this year. Green, let me take you behind the curtains. The first meeting in Denver, I worked for Coach Parcells in 1997 with the New York Jets. Sean Payton worked for Bill Parcells. Here's exactly what he said. Fellas, I go by what I see. The best players will play. Russell Wilson isn't fighting for his legacy. He's fighting for his job. He could care about a salary cap charge, dead money. The best players will play. They will draft his replacement if he doesn't do everything he says from day one. If you go back to his press conference, Sean Payne talked about there will be no outside coaches, mm-hmm. mentors yep. in the building. Yeah. He, he is the new Take sheriff the of town. That's right. And he is beholden to no one, including Russell Wilson's guaranteed money. Is Russell playing for his job, not his legacy this year? Well, it's interesting. I've known Mike a long time. find him to be one of the more astute minds, you know, that it analyzes and picks and, you know, now is outside of, you know, being an executive. And I always thought the pairing with Sean Payton and Russell Wilson was a little odd. You know, stylistically, I think he's different than other quarterbacks that Sean has had. I think that Sean's an amazing coach. I think he'll make Russ better. But I would agree with Mike. I think that Ultimately, Sean Payton didn't come back, you know, to go 8-8 eight and eight or, I mean, 8-9 and nine or, you know, even worse. And I think that Russell Wilson needs to play better next year. Now, some of that is, like, did you put enough around him? How's that offensive line look? You know, he traded one offensive line he complained about for another he'll probably complain about pretty soon. And, you know, again, it speaks to the system a little bit. But I also think we're seeing a player who's not as fast as he used to be, you know, who whose game was sort of predicated on moving around and speed. And, uh, you know, if I were betting, I just I think it has disaster written all over it. I think he'll be better this year than he was last year. I mean, he looks great. He's lost a lot of weight. I mean, and, and that can only help his speed. And if Sean Payton can can tell him, hey, this way or you don't play, you know, to save him the embarrassment, maybe Russ can do more of the off script stuff and things that have made him special in the past. But is it going to be a Super Bowl team 
is it going to be a playoff team in that division, right? And and all the challenges that exist there. I don't know. I think Russ won't embarrass himself this year the way he did last year, but I don't know whether he can actually have the success that they need. See, that's how I like to live my life, right? Like, just lower the expectations <laughs> so they're so low right. that, of course, you're going to do better. At yeah. least the I crowd's mean, not counting down to help you with the play clock this year, so basically everything's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do think he'll play better, but then you look at their division, right? Chargers could be pretty good. You know, there's that guy, Patrick Mahomes. Yep. Raiders kind of a disaster. But I, I just think that, uh, yeah, I mean, when you look at the landscape, I don't, it would be hard for me to put them in the top 10 or even top 15. We got Greg Bishop with us from Sports Illustrated. Greg, you wrote a little bit about the Kraken and followed some of their uh, playoff run. What did you learn about the Kraken? Well, one thing I learned is there's a huge hockey community here. Yeah. And it wasn't just hockey fever based off the playoff run but really extends really deep and pretty wide. And my own family caught it, you know. Um, I was telling you during the break, my son has two missing front teeth on the bottom, and he's been growing out his hair for almost two years. He wants it to be longer than Rapunzel's. And basically it's a mullet, you know, and he's five, so he doesn't understand what that is. So I, <laughs> I taught him how to say, who's ready for some hockey? And basically he's been doing it all around town, you know, Fred Meyer, restaurants, gas nice. stations. So he, he's got the fever. He wears his tentacles on his hands everywhere we go. My daughter, who's 19 months, has a Bowie the Troll doll that she's one of her favorites. Of course. And, you know, we, we basically locked in. We started watching every game. I went up to the rink in Northgate. Uh, first time I've ever been excited to go to Northgate Mall, uh, I think, in my life. And, you know, I just think that that's a, it's a fun sport to watch. But that team, man, like the two game sevens and the back and forth. And I watched game three at the Angry Beaver, the hockey bar in Greenwood with the owner who's lived through 10 lifetimes in the 10 years he's owned the place. Mm-hmm. And to just watch that place fill with the spirit of hockey and the spirit of postseason hockey. I mean, I don't know. I, I barely watched uh, hockey at all before the last couple months, and now I'm sort of hooked. Well, I would think that you're not alone in that. And and as somebody who grew up with the game, watching it, not playing it, but watching it, I, I've made this claim a few times here on this show and in other places. There are times where I'm surprised hockey is not the most popular sport in America. And I understand some of the reasons why it's not and, and some of the history and it's challenging to play it. And, you know, in some of the warm weather cities, no ice, no rinks, et cetera. And they haven't done the best job of figuring out how to market it. But it's got everything Americans love in sports. There's plenty of scoring. There's tons of hitting. There's a code in it that is unlike anything else. The guys are open and available. There are so many reasons. And then you get to the playoffs and they combine the excitement and fast pace of the NFL and NBA with the, with the incredible tension and anxiety of the baseball playoffs. Hockey's like almost perfect. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it, as a storyteller, I guess, at my core, like, I love the tension in hockey. Yes. For all the reasons that you said, like, there's strategy, there's violence, there's scoring, there's switching, constantly switching in, in terms of lines, and it's just, there's really never a dull moment when you really sit down and watch, and then you throw in, like, the what they did at Climate Pledge, the experience there, uh, the oddity of the mascot, you know, Todd Lewicki and everything he's done and the great young players. You know, I just think that this team is going to be interesting to watch for a long time. And we have seen Seattle in my lifetime switch f- into different sports. Mm-hmm. You know, this was a Mariners town and then it was a Seahawks town. 
who knows? I, I guess I could see, to your point, it being a Kraken town at some point in our lifetimes. That would be, I think, a lot. I yeah. mean, again, I think that's hard for hockey in any new city, especially one that has some other loves like the Mariners and Seahawks, Huskies, et cetera. But I, I do think that you're right, that there's sort of this this community that's been around for a while and a newer burgeoning hockey community that hopefully is starting to understand what that sport is all about. And this is a big off season for them. I mean, like if they can go out and bring in one more kind of guy to to put them over the top, a real score, somebody who 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 you will have to take notice of to take some of the pressure off a young kid like Beneers. I think that puts them in in maybe a different class, which would be pretty fun. Yeah, and I think it would be you know fun to watch that, especially with home games in the series. And I think they're building in the right way. It's an exciting team to match a a great arena experience, and then you throw all that together with a, a you know a city where fans. Flock to winners, no disrespect intended, and I I just think it's all moving in the right direction. You know, 2008 feels like a long time ago when every team hadn't won a game. You know, like there are a lot of interesting things happening right now in Seattle sports that I find myself drawn to and writing about. Whereas for years I I didn't write anything locally yeah. at all. No, that's a good point, and it's a good time to be doing sports radio here. And Brock and I are having fun doing it and just kind of talking through all this stuff. Uh, he's not a Seattle sports figure, but for some reason, his, whatever he does seems to be news here, and that's Aaron Rodgers. You mentioned you've interviewed Aaron a few times. As you as you watch this last few months from the darkness retreat to the, you know, I'm in charge, not them, to now some of the – what do you make of what's happening with Aaron Rodgers? He is a very complicated person. I guess in an overall sense, I would say – an athlete in general who seeks enlightenment, we tend to celebrate. And yet with him, it's different, right? Like people don't tend to celebrate his quest for inner peace or calm or whatever it is he's been doing the last couple of years. And I think that's partly because some of his opinions are fairly dangerous, you know, like the COVID stuff, like, uh, you know, the idea that he's a 9-11 truther, which is a persistent rumor that's out there. And I just think that Aaron's one of the more fascinating brains I've ever sat in front of. I remember I did a cover on him in 2015 and he called the day after and he was upset and I was thinking, oh gosh, what did I screw up? Because I led the story with the astronaut he beat in Celebrity Jeopardy who Mm -hmm. I spoke with. They had like drinks afterward and Aaron, no lie, asked him about the physics of throwing a Hail Mary. (laughs) You know, and then he beat him on, on the show And what he was upset about was that the headline, it was inside the mind of Aaron Rodgers. And he's like, nobody can get inside my mind. And that stuck with me ever since because maybe he's right. You know, maybe that is as distinct a mind as we're going to come across. And it's hard to really project. Hmm. You know, I tried to write him last season before I went to Qatar for the World Cup. I pitched him on reading what he sent the NFL, you know, like, send me your stuff and let's have a real conversation. You say nobody tries to understand you. Here I am standing here saying that I want to try to understand you. Right. And we had sort of – it seemed like it was going to happen. And then while I was in Qatar, their season fell apart, and so did the story. But I'm very interested in trying to get him again in part because I covered the Jets in 2008 when they traded for Favre and he became the Packers starter. And in fact, about two months ago, I wrote a Jets story where I redid Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, but with a Jets version. So – 
We can write anything over here. Harry and, Truman, Doris Day, Red <laughs> China, Johnny Ray. Yes. Except for it was like a Jumbo Big Cat, <laughs> Altoon. How about that? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Jumbo Elliott, former giant left yeah, tackle, ended yeah. up going to the Jets. That's pretty good. Uh, the thing to me about Rodgers, and, and it's a good question you asked there about sort of why he's not celebrated. To me, it's because he tries to come off as better than everyone else. And I don't know about you're right. Yeah, you know, some of the opinions are maybe polarizing, but there's a huge group of people that agree with a lot of those opinions as well. Sure. To me, it's more about this this seeming belief that he's smarter than everybody, he knows more than everybody, and he and and by the way, far be it for me to criticize that. I sometimes feel the same way and get accused of the same thing. <laughs> no one all's got to stick together. That's fine. <laughs> but I I think there's an element with him where he's trying to to. To bend everybody, to make everybody bend the knee all the time, and I, I think about the story. It's the one more than any other Aaron Rodgers story that's jumped out to me is him telling about the coaches from the Packers coming out to visit him in in L.A. and him making them wait by the side of the road because he wasn't back from meeting with his Buddhist friends. And just like he's so proud of the fact that these coaches who he's supposed to report to really will do whatever he wants. And it just, it feels like such a small man syndrome. It feels like such a guy that, 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 you know, has this weird issue with his family that needs love and support and to be told all the time how important he is to everyone. And I think it just doesn't, it doesn't sit right with people. Would you call it smugness and insecurity? Because I think you're onto something. I think there's definitely something along those lines. I don't know what the right word is for it. I'll leave that to you as a writer. But I, I do think that there's just that element of like, and, and we heard it in the uh, in the athletic article. I don't know if you had a chance to read it yet that came out today. And he's basically saying the same stuff. Justin was reading me some of that earlier, and it's basically like, oh yeah, Gutenkust came, but uh, I didn't I didn't write him back. Yeah, I, I mean, he might have texted me a few times. Eventually, I got back to him, and now I'm mad that he didn't want to hang out with me. Like. No, dude, like you were rude. You were trying to pull a power play all the time. And that's the thing that I think gets me. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, I think everybody has a friend like that in their friend circle, right? Like, I'm not going to name any names. I mean, we only know know one of your friends, but (laughs) yes, okay. You know, like where they they just seem like, uh, you know, they they try to check all the boxes, you know. They meditate, Mm. they uh, read, you know, they're a deep thinker in, in, in heavy quotes and... You know, they love to tell you, like, I think a good example, right, is he gave them a list of people he wanted with the Jets, you know. And of course then he it, did. And then it comes out. And that's not abnormal, by the way. What is abnormal is for it to come out and then have him go on Pat McAfee's show and say, oh, you know, I didn't hand over a list. This isn't, you know, basically like you, you guys have it all wrong. You're exaggerating. I'm so much smarter than you. And I think that does come across in a way where – it's almost like self-help as weaponization, you know, like as a way to bolster the idea that he knows more, that he's mm-hmm. more in tune, that he's found an inner Zen that we will never find. I think that that comes across in a way that is intended to make him look smarter, but actually makes it harder to sort of embrace. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and sometimes smart people are hard to embrace, by the way. And I'm not saying he's not smart. But he does seem to have a belief that he should do everyone else's job. And and by the way, that's not altogether different from what we saw with Russ when he was here. And and unfortunately, the guys he wanted were Antonio Brown and Greg Olson. Like, it didn't go all that well when Russ got his way or wanted his way. 
Absolutely. And I, you know, yeah, with Aaron, like, think of the hubris involved in sending the NFL 500 pages of whatever kind of research he had on COVID. Like, who would even think that that's something that Roger Goodell wants? Right. You know, like, I, I wouldn't send my bosses 500 pages on, like, the decline of print journalism <laughs> to, like, alter their strategy because they'd laugh in my face, hmm. you know? You might be surprised at how often things like that actually <laughs> actually do happen in businesses like this. Uh, Greg, this is fun. We appreciate it. Tell us, uh, you got another minute or so. What else should we be on the lookout for? I know you're doing a lot of sort of writing, TV writing, et cetera. Where should we be looking for your stuff? Well, in terms of elite athleticism, got a big golf scramble coming up on Saturday. Oh, let's, let's go team. Uh, yep. Uh, we're going to win that one. Nice. Uh, I got a documentary movie project with Skydance about a story I wrote on the guy who takes athletes out of Cuba. Unscripted will be first. Mario Diaz is the director. Done a bunch of 30 for 30s. John John Weibach, who did Air in The Last Dance, is doing the movie part of it. Uh, Development deal with Netflix uh, for a documentary called Crossbow that involves a murder with a crossbow. And I'm working on a doc with Boardwalk Pictures about a surfboard that floated from Hawaii to the Philippines during COVID. Thus connecting two strangers in a divided world. Wow. All right. Well, I'm excited about all of those things. You're a busy dude. I love it. He's Greg Bishop, and uh, find him on Twitter at SI or wherever else you find people these days. Just do a Google search, and then you can figure out everything else Greg's doing. Thanks, man. Love the stories. Love getting a chance to see you. Don't be a stranger. We'll do it again. Anytime, brother. All Thanks right, for there having you me. Go. There's Greg Bishop from Sports Illustrated, and everywhere else we'll be right back. It's Brock and Salk, Seattle Sports on 710.